Welcome to episode 8 of the Rosalind podcast. I'm Chloe, your host, and this week on the podcast we're focusing on the 75th anniversary of VE Day. What life on the Rosalind was like during the war, under the D-Day preparations and on VE Day itself. If this is the first episode you're listening to, you can find and listen to the podcast at rosalindpodcast.com, on iTunes and Apple Podcast, on Spotify and on all the other podcast apps. And at rosenpodcast.com, you'll also find links to any resources we mention. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, then please contact us by email on rosalindpodcast at gmail.com. Yesterday, the 8th of May, was the 75th anniversary of VE Day. Whilst the Rosalind wasn't the most affected area of the country or even the county during World War II, plenty went on here. We weren't able to do any interviews with anyone who was actually there at the time, so instead I'm chatting with the next best thing. Two gentlemen who've been collecting the stories of what did happen from those who were there. First up, we've got Peter Teague from St Just, sharing tales of bombings and VE Day itself. But we started by talking about the Home Guard. Yeah, that's right. Um, Father was in the Home Guard and Uncle Joe was in the Home Guard as well. And it was a bit like Dad's army to start with. <laughs> uh, uh, as the war went on, they got proper um, uh, weapons to use. So I, I really became interested in local history and discussing the Home Guard platoon with my late uncle. And I sat down with him and uh, with another chap called Dick Buddle. And we got all the members of St. Justin and Philly Home Guard, which I think was 37 members, and formed. It was formed in May 1940, and the Institute at St. Justin was the enrollment office where they met, and also the old chapel at Trithall. But Samoas had their own platoon, mm-hmm. but they all worked as one team, and target practice was took place at Mesick Farm, uh, oh. St. Just Creek. If you went, ever went up St. Just Creek to the church, um, Mesick Farm was on the left, and St. Just was on the right. So it took place at Mesick Farm, and they fired across into St. Just fields, and obviously um, tightened up their, um, you know, their skills for that sort of thing. Gosh, so they, they did target practice across the creek? Yeah, they did tar- target uh, across the creek. And the reason for this was that um, it was a sort of valley shape. So mm-hmm. um, when the uh, fields at St. Just and Mesick were clear of livestock or people, um, you know, they got on with target practice there. Excellent. I think a lot of people listening to this may not have even realised that we had our own home guard down here. So, but during like the the D Day when we, you know, when there were a lot of army presence here, did the home guard assist them, or was it very much two separate pieces? Well, I think it was two separate pieces, and um, the favourite lookout was uh, Simmel's water tower. Now, Uncle lived at um, Tregeravine Farm, Mm -hmm. and uh, one night he had to walk in May 1940 um, to the uh, water tower, but he could see Plymouth blazing in the blitz from the road, 
and I think that stuck with him for the rest of his life. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, yes, that, it would, another, wouldn't it? It's, um, that must have been... Yeah, that's right. Been yes, quite right. something. We had, yeah, we had checkpoints at St. Just, um, down at S'mores, and all over the place. But, but, you know, I reckon there would have been about 50 Home Guard members here with the three platoons member, um, amalgamated as one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my father was always on about uh, the creek. So we come now to Trevenal Farm, which yes. had a large army camp. And uh, they also had um, a lot of guns up there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this was a target for the Germans. And the Germans always wanted to bomb this, but I don't think they ever got that far, you but, know, uh, because the camp had radar. And when they picked up on the radar, they let them have it uh, because they didn't obviously didn't want any bombs on them. So Jerry dropped his bombs, or some of them, down in the creek and flew off home down that way. So there was... You know, there was active an active army base on the Roseland, not just for the D-Day landings, but just as part of oh, yeah. the general defence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the enrolment was in May 1941 at St. Justin Institute, where my father enrolled, and um, he climbed up the ladder to be sergeant at the end of it. And, um, you know, um, sometimes he's out... Well, sometimes they stayed out all night on mm. these um, exercises, but that was quite rare because you, you wouldn't work nothing the next day. You still had to go home and do all your work. Yes. And a lot of them were farmers, so, they, you know, they had a, really a tough time. My father told me that he lost almost three stone, well, good, good uh, you know, more than two stone. And uh, he did say to me once, it's all right to sleep with your wife, but try sharing your dinner with her. <laughs> So that was simply because yeah. of the, the rationing and still having to do a well, full, full-time rationing. job. Yeah, and I remember the rationing after the war. It was, um, you know, it was quite tight. And uh, I was in the generation where we didn't have anything. Mm. Know, things were really bad. And, um, you know, but we were happy. We lived on the farm. And um, we produced our own chicken and uh eggs and that sort of thing and I think occasionally they killed a pig and you know so they lived really quite well compared with some people and and I guess that that was one of the benefits of being being a farmer was you could get that extra food but then if you're you're still putting in just as much work potentially more than you were previously because you were generating food to feed the nation and at the same time you were also doing your your bit in the home guard I mean a lot of calories were being being burnt yeah, I think so. I, I think it was quite stressful as well at that time mm. um, because, you know, it was a big, big major threat. And I think, you know, um, it didn't happen, but it could have well happened. And uh, I don't think any any home guard in the country would be any match for the Germans if they got here. You know, they, no. they had um, machine guns where we had rifles and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, and there was one day when um, when the war came particularly close to the Rosen, didn't it? When uh, when a bomb got dropped here. Well, it was a, a, a bomb was dropped at um, 
Mesic House, um, if you go down to St. Just Creek and Bar, the other side of the water is a new house now, but the original one was bombed during the war. And they were called, the owners was called Packland. Mm-hmm. And um, they dropped the bomb. Although there was children playing in the garden, they were uninjured. And the only one that was injured or trapped was the gardener. Now, um, Douglas Chaffin worked at the boatyard at the time, and he supports Scatherman. And he ran across from uh, St. Just's side to Mesic side and scrambled up. The tide was out. And uh, he had inner strength to lift the mm-hmm. big slab of concrete, which was trapping the gardener. Oh, wow. And he lifted it that just high enough for the gardener to crawl out. Now, the Acklands were away that time, at the time of the bombing. Mm. And um, I think the reason for the bombs being dropped on Mesic House was that they had the Union Jack line and another flag. But they were that delighted to be uh, alive and uh, they came home, you know, and, and seen what the devastation mm. was. But they decided to give the first heating to St. Just Church. And uh, there is a plaque in the church. I think it's behind the organ pipes now. Uh, Cremate, I hate this, um, this mm. kindness from them. Wow. And, um, and that's... That was it, but that was a, a, a direct hit. And I know there was another bomb, as you go to St. Just to the King Harry Ferry, on the, near the last house on the left, Pembole, and it was dropped in the field there. Whether it was a mistake or not, I don't know. But there's a crater there for, for a, um, a long time afterwards. And how, how lucky was the gardener that it happened... You know, on a day when when the tide was out, so so Dougie could get there that quickly, but also that 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 you know mir- miracle strength came to him to enable him to 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 lift the the concrete. Incredibly lucky. Yeah, it was a miracle because I'm in the heritage group. And I did interview him some years ago, and he said I went back to the scene three days later. And I could not lift the slab off the ground. So he said, inner strength Mm. from above gave me the strength to lift that slab up off the ground for the gardener to crawl out. So I think that's quite remarkable. It certainly is, and and obviously, you know, in this podcast, we're 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 talking about the VE Day um, anniversary. Was there did yeah. much happen here when the war ended to commemorate it? Can you remember? Well, you know, I, I can't remember anything about it because I'm just over three. Yes, yeah, sorry, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I understand that the harbour came alive, came to life for two hours afterwards. The hooting of the uh, boats and screaming and shouting and hurrying, you know, it went on for two hours. It was such a relief, I think, to um, to see the end of it, really, you know. 
And I remember my mother, I do remember my mother telling me um, at the start of 1939 um, that the fear that went through her heart um, when it was declared, we declared war on Germany because we had nothing, you know, we had no, nothing mm. to fight back with compared with them. They had, they had the law. So, you know, that was a, that, that was it really, yeah. It must have been, been such a relief to find out that it was over. Uh, but it also must have been such a, a thing to hear all those horns going and kind of almost echoing up and, you know, disappearing up the creeks. You must have been able to hear it for miles around. Well, I, I would have thought so. Yeah, I would have thought so. And um, for the D-Day landing, they congregated in Farmworth Harbour uh, before they set uh, set sail, mm. and the, the noise then was quite extraordinary. I, 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 you know, this is all second-hand information mm. I've had handed down. But um, when they left here in 1944, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, when they left here, the, the you know the noise of the engines and that, and then suddenly, woof, they were gone. They were on their way. Yes, because, of course, they, they'd have been trying not to make too much noise, wouldn't they? So it must have just, just been the, the general hubbub must have been so loud. Yeah, it, I, I think, yeah, it did. But um, fortunately, uh, it wasn't detected in time. Yes. Cause no, so um, got away with it, really. There's only so quiet you can make that many personnel and, uh, and, and engines, isn't there? So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. So thank you for coming on and sharing those stories. I think they've said I've learned things. And I'm sure they'll have given many of us a, a very different perspective on what on how close the war came to the Roseland. So thank you. OK, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Several stories there that I expect many of you didn't know a thing about. Now, if we go a little further back, we come to an event which I think everyone must know the Roseland was involved with and which was crucial to the path to VE Day. And of course, I'm talking about D-Day. And there was only one person we could speak to about that, Pete Newman, formerly of Tolvern. Hello, Pete. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. So far, so good. So far, so good, indeed. And you're here to, to tell us a bit about what happened with D-Day, obviously not as an eyewitness, um, but as someone who's who's learned an awful lot about it over the years, and how how come the Roseland ended up involved in the D-Day landings? Well, um, I think it's really Churchill and uh, Roosevelt. They knew that the only way to defeat the Germans was to mount an invasion from this country uh, across to France, and uh, as early as nineteen. 42, actually, they were looking for beaches, suitable beaches, to mount an invasion. And, of course, on the Roseland, we, we've, uh, we've got two prominent ones and one on the Helford River. Uh, but the two on the, on, the, on the Fowl, really, on the River Fowl, from Falmouth up, were Tolvern and Turnaway Point. One of the advantages of this, of course, was the fact that the Roseland, as, as you well know, is uh, a peninsula and it was able to be cut off from roughly the, the bottom of Tragedy, what we refer to as Tragedy Bridge. Um, so they could really put sentries up there and then watch who was coming in and out of the Roseland. 
So it was ideal in that respect. And I suppose, did they choose Tolvern and Turnaware, i.e. The, the, the beaches on the river rather than the beaches against the sea because they were more hidden? Was it that well, simple? Well, that's, that's quite right. Yeah, a lot of camouflage, of course, in both cases because of the oak trees there. Um, and, and, and not a lot of, uh, lot of houses, really, sparsely, mm. sparsely um, populated, you might say. Deep water, in the, in the case of the fowl, a good um, 50 feet of water at all states, so uh, ideal for the landing craft. So uh, that, that ticked a lot of boxes. And I guess closer to France than a lot of places in the UK as well. So geographically a good position. Well, it was, but um, when, when D-Day was, was, when they started it, when, when Eisenhower said, let's go, um, 6th of June, they didn't actually go straight across from Falmouth. They went up the coast and rendezvous with everybody else uh, at a place roughly um, off the Isle of Wight, you might say, which they called um, Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> and they went, they went across from there to the, to the, to the beaches. And in, in, in the case of the Roseland, the, the two um, lots of troops were landed at uh, Omaha Beach, which was all for all Americans. And some, of course, went to the other, the other beach, which was Omaha. And the other three were for the, uh, the British and the Canadians. Is, was there re a reason we got the Americans rather than the Canadians or the British? Or was it simply the, the roll of the dice? I would think it was the roll of the dice. I, I can't. I don't honestly know that. Um, I know they were very young. My, my mother, my parents, and my mother in particular used to, to tell me that they uh, they were all conscripts and very young people. The, the actual troops, uh, some were you know eighteen, nineteen years of age. Uh, so very young men. And a, a lot of people, um, you know, as we as we've gone our walks down to Turnaware or down to Tolvern. People think about how the Americans built all that infrastructure, but that might not quite be the case. Is that right? That is, in, that's quite right. Yes, it's uh, it's always said that the Americans built the Roman slipway for the invasion. No, um, it's it's a, num a number of people built it really. The actual road, in in the case of Tolvern, there was a track, like a farm track, really down to the to the to the cottage, and. Um, that was that was widened, and that was done by the British. Um, the county council had a great involvement, or what we today would call a sort of Cormac. Yeah. And the yeah. actual beach, the hard, all that concrete hard, and the jetty, which was there was a big jetty running out, a man-made jetty, which they called the Dolphin. That was built by another company, and um, then of course the the actual. The, the troops didn't come there for, for ages. It was all pr prepared. So there was a great preparation before the actual troops arrived. It's because it would be an awful lot of infrastructure for them to build whilst also training to get ready. Oh, I... indeed, yes. They, yeah, thousands and thousands of tonnes were, were, were built, uh, were brought, I should say, uh, by ship, a lot of it by ship and lorry, um, to build the beaches. Because the beaches are they're man-made, both the Tonawer uh, and Tolvern, they they were nothing like uh, they are today. So that's that's a lot all made made up with reinforced concrete and giant pieces of granite, which came from uh, the, the quarries like Penryn, etc. 
Um, and then uh, the concrete was laid. Interesting point about the concrete, because uh, when we had the, the 50th anniversary of D-Day, which was in uh, 94, uh, I met the man that actually was responsible for building the hard. And he pointed out to me, he said, do you know why you've got a covering of asphalt on this, this concrete here? And I said, no, I don't. He said, well, when we built the hard, he said a couple of days later, it all went white. And he said, we, we, uh, we thought we've got to do something about this immediately. And uh, what they did was they, they put a smear of um, asphalt to, to darken it down because the Germans could see from the air, of course, that there was two beaches that were rather prominent on the Roseland. So that was something that they did very quickly. And that was something I, I was um, very pleased to, to learn. I learned quite a bit from him, actually. Yes, and you have to wonder, you know, the immediate thought would be, well, let's paint it. So it's quite clever of them to not put down a paint which could be scraped off by things, but to go straight to the asphalt route, which obviously is a lot that's more right. complicated. Certainly, yes, yes. And that, that's still, still there. Some of it is still there today. And there's evidence in, in the road itself with um, the tanks from the Sherman tanks, the Caterpillar tracks, as you could see, and the same with Turnaware. And some of those what they called the mats, which were on the beach uh, for the tanks to go up and down and the landing craft to go on. They're still in existence. And some of the far local farmers have got them for uh, for farmyards as well. And, they, uh, and were all the all the troops, when they did arrive, were they all at um, Turnaware and Tolvern, so sat on the beaches? Is that where they lived when they were, were waiting to go? Or were there other places brought into use by the army around the peninsula? Oh, they were everywhere. They, not, they were where, where there was a suitable place, really. Mm -hmm. um, camouflage from the air was important. Um, and they, they set up field camps with kitchens and everything. And uh, a lot of the, well, the troops were under canvas. Nissen huts were put up. And... Um, they, they were they were all over the Rosenry. Some Moors played a part too, and Mesic Point. And um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't until because the, the actual D Day was delayed for twenty four hours because of the bad weather, and Eisenhower had to wait. So the troops uh, they did in fact start. I've got in my possession. I've still got them here. I've got the uh, the record of the landing craft that actually left from Tolburn. And something that is of interest, you might find, that one of the, uh, all the LSTs, as they were called, which was landing ships, tanks, they were all numbered, not named. And they were all numbered. And one uh, is still in existence. There's two in existence, but one is still in existence, which is uh, in America and is a museum. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that number, we can trace back that it actually departed from Tolverne. And there is another one that they found in Greece uh, not too long ago that uh, the Americans discovered it and, and uh, asked the Greek government if they would release it, which they did. And that's also in America. And that one, we can trace, went from Turnaware. Wow. So that's, that's rather interesting, I find. That's, that's quite amazing. Yeah. Out of all the landing craft that could yeah. have survived, the only two came launched off the Roseland. Well, that's right. That's right, because there was, there was a good thousand of them made, you see. Mm. They, uh, they, they were built for the job, um, although they had a few, a few in the early days of the war in, in other places, 
um, in the Mediterranean that they had LS, uh, landing craft, LSTs and things. But um, that's that's how it was. So yeah, that's uh, we find that rather interesting. Yeah, really. definitely. And there's there's something which I've always heard, or I've, I've heard, but I've never really fully understood, which was that did the did they when the troops got here they turned the Rosens into a one way zone. That is quite right. Yes, um, the troops came, came well from uh, from the Tregony area uh, along the main road, as we call it. And when they got to Ruin High Lanes, it is it is possible to to turn right and head towards the the river, King Harry Ferry area, and Tolver, um, and turn where I come to that. But what they decided to do was to make it a one way system. So they continued down the main road and went past the uh, entrance into in Porthcarrow and Gerrans, and then on to St Just in Roseland. And when they got to St Just, the ones that were going to Turnaware and to Mesick and Tolvern uh, turned right and went along the road which we refer to as the King Harry Road. Um, and the ones went to Turnaware, Mesick and, and Tolvern. When they got there, um, the remainder... That because uh, these some of these were troop carriers, of course, uh, lorries and stuff that they had to go back again and pick up more, and uh, they went back and they went up past uh, the village up through the village of Philly, and uh, then back up to Royal Eye Lane. So yes, there was a one-way system uh, because, of course, it was ideal being a, the peninsula. Which I would imagine the locals found somewhat frustrating, especially if they were trying to get from Portsgatho to Rosevine. <laughs> Turns yes. into a very long journey, doesn't it? It is rather. Yeah. Is, I, I, I think uh, there was a great restriction on the local people. I, I know the farmers uh, had to have a permit to um, to go out into the fields. Um, uh, you know, the, the general public, as such, they didn't realise what was going on. They knew obviously there was a lot of people there, um, many of which were black, by the way. Uh, first time you might say that so the people on the Roseland saw black people in the mm. flesh. Um, so um, they uh, they they were restricted. They couldn't go out and wander about as uh, as as because uh, this was obviously very very top secret. So so today's lockdown is somewhat less stringent than the D Day lockdown was, I suppose. Well, that, yes, sure. That's, I don't yes. think the farmers need a permit to go out into their own fields at the moment. I think I think there'd be some interesting reaction if they. Did. I think I think there would be. <laughs> um. And Pete, you mentioned Mesic Point a couple of times there. So I know people didn't leave from Mesic Point, but what was? And I'm guessing they possibly didn't camp out there either, because it's quite a, a, a visible point. So what what happened at Mesic Point? Well, there, there was um, well pontoons, you might say, um, not quite as substantial as there was built two pontoons built uh, at Turnaway, which they referred to as dolphins, and the one at Tolvern, and these were put there to hold the ships in place whilst they were being loaded. And um, Mesic, of course, was, was very near to um, Tonaware. So that that, uh, that had a, a place, and of course, very close to Falmouth, because um, Falmouth was really the headquarters of the Falmouth Hotels. That's where the, the top brass of the American state, you might say. So uh, to nip across from Falmouth to Mesic Point, you were then on the Roseland, which meant that uh, it was far quicker and easier than the, than either going across the King Harry Ferry or going up river to to the the two beaches the the harbors they called them. 
Oh, okay, so it's almost just literally a kind of a tube stop, if that makes sense, or a bus stop. Well, yeah, order. that's right. That's right. Yes, it did. It didn't. I don't think it played such an important part as an as an embarkation for troops. No. But just just to enable the people to get between Falmouth and and the two beaches. That's right. That's right. Oh well, Pete, I've I've learned a lot. I keep saying that at the end of interviews for this podcast. I've learned a lot again. I've learned a lot. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure the listeners will have learned a lot too. But thanks so much for for coming on and and sharing some D Day stories with us. It's greatly appreciated. Well, there's no problem. I I enjoy talking about it. Really, I, I you know I've been in well here you know t- here a while, ten years or more, but. I, I still, um, I've got a great affection for the for the Roseland, but I, I still t- can talk about it and and find it interesting the uh, the D Day, and um, this is why I have no hesitation to talk to you. Well, thank you, Pete, and have um have a have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you very much, and all the best to you. Well, we'll finish off our VE Day episode with this poem, specially written for the anniversary by Alan Durham from Tregony, our guest in episode two, if he sounds familiar. A Brief Time to Rejoice by Alan Durham Churchill stood proud, cigar in mouth, his right hand raised, his fingers veed. To address all peoples, north and south, because he knew we would succeed. For a while the Nazi dog shook Europe, but you never flinched or wavered. You never lost faith, charity or hope, and your victory should be savoured. We were attacked by a monstrous enemy, but your soldiers fought for every bloody field. Our airmen in the sky, our navies on the sea, and the evildoers now are being forced to yield. The German war is over, but we still have work to do. Many a battle yet to win before our victory's true. So let's enjoy the moment, this brief time to rejoice. Soon we'll sing our songs of peace, led by a worldwide voice. Well, thanks for listening. That's it for our V-Day anniversary special. We'll be back next week with more of our normal output. And um, for now, though, be kind and stay safe.